0: This episode of Troxel is supported by Avail. Avail helps AECO firms better manage, organize, and navigate information faster. Visit getavail.com today. This episode of Troxel is supported by Confluence, which is now more than a conference. It's also a video podcast where AEC industry software developers take us behind the scenes and share their design and decision-making process to show how they made the tools we all use to design the built environment. It's available on YouTube and Spotify. Follow the link in the show notes and subscribe today. Welcome to the Troxel podcast. This is Evan Troxel. Just a quick reminder up front here to sign up for my AEC Tech email newsletter at trxl.co. The latest issue has articles about a new podcast that I'm working on called Confluence that you might be interested in, the Rhino version 8 beta release, and ChatGPT's new image generator that's coming soon to compete with the likes of MidJourney. Again, click the link in the show notes or head over to trxl.co and click on one of the subscribe buttons. In this episode, I welcome Benjamin Guler. Ben is a partner and the CTO at Evolve Lab. Coming from an architectural background, Ben serves as a liaison between the AECO industry and the computer science world and works on app design, computational design, generative processes, process management, and standardization, both in their product offerings for the AEC industry and for the clients they work with directly as consultants. In this episode, Ben and I talk about Evolve Lab's tools, including Helix, Glyph, Morphus and Verus design workflows, automation, interoperability, AI-based rendering via your model and a simple text-based prompt, the novel differences between AI-based rendering and more traditional rendering tools, which also include texturing and lighting workflows, how this affects rendering as a decision-making tool in our design workflow how this potentially shifts where rendering fits into the design phase compared to other rendering tools used up until now, and other topics. A side note here, Varys comes up pretty often in my Troxel AEC tech newsletter, which I talked about a minute ago, because it seems like it gets updated every couple of weeks. So even what we talked about in this episode might already be outdated or built upon and enhanced so again sign up by visiting trxl.co or click the link in the show notes as always this was a great conversation so without further ado i bring you ben guler ben welcome to the podcast great to have you thank you it's good to be here thanks for the invite and uh... It's awesome to be here with you. You're the second Evolve Labber on the podcast. Bill Allen was on the show before and uh, caught up with you guys a little bit at the AIA conference in San Francisco. And I was like, we have to make this happen because uh, there's so many things going on. I I keep seeing Evolve Lab. You guys keep releasing tools that look super useful, um, but also just intriguing. I think you're, you're taking the AI rendering thing head on, and we'll get to that in the conversation. Before we get there, uh, I would love to just hear the story about how you got involved at Evolve Lab and like, what's that been like for you over the past few years? Because you were a recently made partner there. And so uh, you've really settled in, obviously. So give us this kind of the the story, a little bit of a
1: backstory on how that all happened. Sure. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, So basically I started my career path in architecture. So went to UIC for that. And I've always kind of gravitated towards the technical side. Um, in the beginning, actually, even in studio, like I really kind of cared about visualization. So that was kind of like a big deal for me. Like I try to use the best hardware because I was a video game geek and I would always like get the best graphics card and get the best video games and upgrade my, you know, my my hardware to get, you know, the best quality. So because I had that, I knew how to like, you know, the rendering software, how to model and all that. So that was kind of, was kind of a, a focus of mine when I was kind of, in school. So basically in the beginning of my career, I was hired as an intern to do renderings. So that was kind of like my, this connects to kind of other things we're probably going to talk about. So I'm mentioning this here. Uh, So I I switched a few different jobs and uh, kind of in, in the last one before Evolve Lab, I kind of migrated to a bin manager. And then that's where I started to use a lot of Dynamo, writing Python scripts and stuff like that. And then the limitations of that beyond scripting and started to write add-ins in in c-sharp and other languages and so i was gravitating a lot more towards the technical side and i was kind of doing that during like nights and weekends and then i was kind of given like a day a week to do that which is always looking forward to that okay i get it's friday i could do some coding today actually part of my job so it's really great um and so like i really wanted to do that kind of full-time and i um I've known about Evolve Lab throughout the years and I've even seen like mm-hmm. posts and other people that have gone there. Like, oh, I'm not worthy. I can't join this firm yet because like, I don't know c shop yet or something like that. So o- over over time, once I got my skills, as I thought, uh, to a level of competence, uh, I, I'm like, okay, a job posting is there. I'm just gonna apply for it and see what happens. And so I had a few different calls and joined Evolve Lab and, you know, I don't regret it ever since. So that's kind of the beginnings that's of cool. it.
0: yeah. How many Bill Allen uh, AU courses did you or workshops did you go to? Uh, because I think that's that's like where a lot of people got introduced to Bill and his amazing classes or panel discussions or roundtables that he would host at AU. Always super highly rated. Uh, did did
1: you attend those as well? So I actually didn't go to AU much, but I watched the recordings. Okay. okay. Yeah. So the. Yeah. The first time I went to you AU, you were there in solidarity. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, the first time, uh, like I've, I watched the videos, like Bill Allen, I knew about him, watched a bunch of his videos, and yeah. they were pretty good back then, like posting like on YouTube, even now we still post pretty regularly. So, I knew that from that, like, free tutorial, like, oh, I'm learning that, I want to know how to do that, or like, rabbit categories or something that you know, all sorts of like tricks that were kind of uh there. Uh, and then I think my first year was like in 2019, and then you know, I got to go and like, oh,
0: this is great, this is awesome. That's cool. Yeah. Fun. I mean, Bill's just a great character Yeah, in the AEC technology sphere. And I mean, obviously he's really approachable, super, just an amazing guy. And so I I can see why you wanted to work there too. I mean, beyond technology, right? I mean, it's like, it's just, there's, there's a great culture. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. So, okay. So take us through kind of, I mean, the elephant in the room is Verus, right? Verus is the, the, the thing. And you guys have been releasing other tools as well. And I, I mean, there's, we can definitely get into that stuff as well, but AI based kind of image generation based on your model in various tools, right? Not just Revit, uh, but also Rhino and SketchUp. And so like, like, okay, before we get into like your, how, how I mean, I hope we can talk about how Verus actually works. But but you, like, where did this idea come from? How did you guys start to approach this idea How before you even got to a, an actual product that, that got released?
1: Yeah, so the way we really started was, um, and I, I might go through some of the products just for reference, but, like, for example, as as, yeah. we've had Helix, which is on interoperability, uh, Glyph, which is auto-documentation, and uh, we just recently released publicly Morphous. Uh, and this is kind of actually the way we're planning to release them, but then kind of Verus came in before uh, uh, Morphous. But the idea is that we were looking at the industry. Uh, so we're, we come from the industry, right? We're AEC and we've practiced in it and have done, you know, grassroots. We've done the job basically. And so what, whenever there's anything emerging technology, we take that and try to make that accessible to like, you know, if I had that when I was a designer, great if I had a tool for that. So like for example this latest one which is Morphis, takes in kind of what um, Revit GD does which is you know um, um, uh, generative design basically and generative design algorithms uh, and we've just built our own and packaged it in a very simplistic way and accessible way that has an easier way to access to the UI for end users. You'd have to know Dynamo. You don't have to you know connect things. You can still get all your design options things like that. And so with Verus, you know, as we're kind of always, uh, it stays kind of pretty true to the Evolve Lab DNA where like we just take kind of emerging technologies and we play with them a little bit, see if there's anything there, what can we do with them? And th- and so with with Verus, it kind of started with like what's out there and we saw kind of the rise of Midjourney, and like that was really like in 2020 to last year and beginning of it was like kind of taking over all social media, like almost every other post totally. you see was like then like, okay, there's something there. So we started playing with that. like, okay, this is pretty cool actually. And it wasn't that good actually back then either. It was just kind of like, it looked like a Photoshop. And so, you know, as um, DALI 2 and other uh, uh, tools came out, even the open source ones and other, other open source kind of models, we start to play with those libraries and those technologies. And we saw, okay, these are very flattened technologies in terms of like, they impact the whole world. Like, it, it, you know, it's for every industry. It's like jewelry design or any, any industry that exists basically are going to be affected by this thing. So like us being in this space and, you know, making applications for AC, how could we, let's just, we want to stay afloat and make sure, not just afloat, but ahead actually, and start to play with the technology, see how it could impact our current products. And then if there's a proof of concept or something that we're, we don't have a product for, for example. And so that's kind of how it started where we are just kind of, looking, we actually first looked at some kind of like Morphous integration and we're looking at other integrations for our current applications for, you know, machine learning models. And so in that effort we kind of like, well, we could actually use this for just rendering and myself actually actually having that background and rendering and playing with it a lot and, and testing the different libraries I'm like this is pretty cool. Like I could see myself just if we package this in a way that's very easy to access and, and have end users uh, you know, play with it and see any value in it. Like Let's just go for it. So then we kind of spent a few months just putting together, like, okay, let's see what this looks like. And then this pipeline that we built infrastructure that could, you know, because everything is a uh, cloud based, it's uh, cloud computing. Uh, how could how, how do you kind of create all that infrastructure as we can use it for other machine learning models, like large language models, mm-hmm. uh, besides you know uh, diffusion in- diffusion based models. So mm-hmm. uh, it was almost kind of serving to upgrade our tech stack basically. And then there was also a product at the end here. Because of all the other ideas that we had. that's kind of how it it started. and then we' obviously we're keeping up with all like new releases and things that are coming out. we're integrating into our application and uh, iterating on top of that and adding uh, new ideas on top of it. so
0: it seems like I keep seeing things coming out of school where people say, "I just went to x and y's jury for their final presentations. All the students are using mid journey. All the students are using AI rendering. I mean, to me, I think that's that's pretty interesting, right? Because at some level, and I think what we all saw with prompt based image generation was not a lot of control over right. the, the outcome, right? Or right. you have to spend just as much time as you would creating the geometry and applying materials and lighting and entourage and all those things to create a rendering as you would kind of crafting the prompt, right? The whole idea of Prompt engineering was right. No matter how if that if that phrase triggers you or not. No, we use it all the time. You, I know. Yeah, and I'm talking to the audience right now Ah. (laughs) (laughs) because I know there's people every time they hear that they're like rolling their eyes and oh my god. But it 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 does take some experience, right, to create a prompt that can give you anything close to what you want. And many people don't have the patience for that, right? Where they have the patience to spend hours and hours and hours modeling the details, applying the textures, applying the lighting, hitting render, walking away, coming back, you know, if it's real time or if it's not real time, if it's V-Ray or Enscape or whatever it right? is, you've got time to do that, right? But you, maybe you don't have the time to put into kind of crafting those prompts to get what you want. So it's interesting to me, to hear when people go to these school juries and they're saying, everyone's using this. All the students are using it. They're going crazy with this stuff. And yeah, the examples that I've seen from the people who do this every single day, right? Like there's Hassan on I think that's how you say his name, but he's always posting on LinkedIn. I follow him on Instagram. Early adopter of MidJourney, gone through all the different versions of that and like really pointing out the nuance of what's changed between the different releases and what's good at, what it's not good at where it's gotten better, where it's regressed in different areas. And I just think like that, the level of uh, commitment to that kind of a, a new paradigm, new tool set in working is exactly what it is. Like it's a commitment to actually get to that. And now you take the tool that you've got, you have guys have created that kind of democratizes access to I mean, you can get more into the nuance, I kind of assume it's a, it's a diffusion based and control net kind of a, you know, soup that you've put together on top of a program that people are already building their model in, which gives them then the bones that the image is, is then using, or the, the prompt is then building on top of. And that to me makes it so you don't have to commit so much to getting into becoming a quote unquote prompt engineer but right. more of like a video gamer like yeah. like to go so back to, play. to where you started it's like this is a skin for my model right and yeah. this is a skin for my game and i you know i have a kid who loves to play minecraft and obviously we've seen all the the stuff out there with fortnite over the past few years and and like just people love like reskinning their real-time engine with a, a different look it keeps thing- and that's what now architecture students are doing with their models and and so maybe you can just speak to all that that I just spit out on the, on the table there but like just where, where does that where does that get you thinking about your response to all that
1: No I think, I think that's exactly where our uh, vision is for all that. It's like there's like you've mentioned already, like the prompt engineering aspect is pretty technical like midjourney prompts don't work the same way for DALI or Stable Infusion. They're mm-hmm. different syntax that behave in a different way. And as you get different models out, you actually get different syntax also because of the way they're being trained actually, the different clip models that are actually used to understand the image and auto you know, generate different you know, tags, meta tags. So basically that is part of, that is a challenge actually. People that have the patience to even, and this is something we've learned actually a lot with Helix, well people, like in average, like the time span that you have to get someone to like, okay, this is like, you know, to get someone to like get to write a prompt is even that's a challenge actually. So if you could even take it that away and try to kind of, what we're trying to do is like, don't even have a prompt if possible. Like, and still get that, yeah.
0: Get I think it's like, this is a game in itself, right? right. Like, you, If you, if you made this Mad Libs where it's like, okay, here's, here's a, there's already something there and then you fill in this one blank and then there's a little bit more of the sentence and then you fill in this blank and then right. you, and then you read it out loud, which is hitting go right. like that. And everybody laughs because they love what comes back out of it. Like that to me is, is kind of the, what you're up against, right? You've got to create a, uh, we, I keep hearing like this, this the prompt is the perfect UI because it's mm-hmm. conversational. People already know how to ask a question. But this is different. Like this isn't the large language model based right. chat GPT right. thing where I can ask it a question and get a response. I'm not asking my model a question. Right. What do you want to be model? Right. I am I'm actually giving it cues. Right. And and all of a sudden people are faced with this blank page of the prompt now. And there's just as much hesitation there as there is in going up against a blank page when they start a design project. Exactly. Right? It's like, some people are like, give it to me. I'm ready. Yes. And other people are like, I want to think about this for three weeks,
1: right? Right. And that's the nuance that we're trying to, and the balance we're trying to strike. We do want the ability to right. get those people to do that to a certain degree. Uh, and then also the other people that are just kind of like, yeah, I'm just exploring, see if I could get something. And then once you get to like that aha moment, like, oh, wow, this actually could produce really cool results. How do, how do I do that? And like, That's kind of maybe one of the things that we're working on now to even simplify it further, like super simplistic way and using cues from the, you know, if you're in SketchUp, using cues from the SketchUp model, extracting more metadata from there, from Revit. Mm. uh, We've checked already quite a few metadata from there that you don't have to know about. Like it's just there, you're in Revit. Okay, let's see what we can get from there or Rhino. And so like minimizing that is, interesting. yeah, it's because we're in that space space that we could kind of understand what I would, you know, I were to do this, I understand what I would need for, for from the model. And so, yeah, it's that challenge, basically trying to get like a package where it's simplistic, it's very easy to use, but still allows you for that dynamic like exploration to go deeper if you want to start to kind of be more manual and, and kind of uh, crafting and sculpting what you're trying to do. It thinks,
0: I just go back to Clippy, right? It looks like you're writing a business letter. It looks like you're designing a school. I don't know what those things are, but it's like you guys start to extract some kind of information based on what it's kind of watching people make. And then maybe there's a, uh, it's like, it looks like you're trying to do this. Would you like help with that? Right. I think that that's kind of interesting. This episode is made possible with support from Avail. What's one of the most painful aspects of working in Revit today? Well, we all know that as a Revit project grows over time, navigating the information in that project becomes ever more taxing. And when more than one person is working on a project, a new wave of challenges arise. It only gets more difficult throughout the life of a project. Good news, a huge update to Avail Desktop was just released. Version 4.5 introduces several powerful new features designed to improve organizing, searching, and finding information within Avail. New features include channel groups, application mappings, and scope searches. But that's not all. Let's talk about the all-new Project Navigator, a powerful new feature in Avail for Revit 5.1 that extends Revit's native project browser to help navigate the dense information you're forced to endure as your projects grow. For the first time, Avail will connect your active project to your standard library with one unified search box. With Project Navigator, you can easily switch between active projects, see recently viewed Revit elements, search across all Revit project elements, yes all of them, conveniently search avail with one click, filter by all the different element types, navigate to sheets and views legends and schedules, view individual elements contained on sheets and navigate to them, view family types and more importantly actually drag and drop them right into your project, few instances of each family type currently being used in the model, and more. To read all about the new features and see a video of them in action, visit getavail.com. There you'll find a features pull-down menu, and you can look at all of the different features, including the new project navigator. Once again, that's getavail.com, and look in the bar across the top for that features pull-down menu. Thank you to Avail for supporting this episode of Troxel. So okay before we be continue down kind of the technical implementation let, let let's take a step back yeah obviously you're making a product and but that's not the answer to this question the answer to the selling product uh, i think the the answer to this question i hope is is going to be more interesting than that why why are you interested in this problem and this solution why are you trying to get people to use ai to render 3d models in the architecture space what's what's the Benefit? What's the value in that? What are you What are you guys seeing there?
1: Yeah, there's a few different ones. It could be okay. So right now we have a. If you look at the visualization space, and this is kind of the way I see it is is almost kind of the tip of the iceberg. Like that's just visualization, and what we're trying to do with, or what everyone's trying to do with visualization up until now, and and from now forward, is we're trying to simulate reality, like physics. You know, mm-hmm. like there's unbiased methods where or path tracing that, you know, we're trying to simulate what's there in a physics-based way. So then requires, you know, materiality, things like that. And with machine learning, it's such a kind of reverse that like, no, I I don't start from there where I'm kind of building the molecules and then you kind of render the molecules, if you will, as an analogy. You're actually just looking at what do you usually see as a photograph? And based on that, I could simulate it from a different endpoint. I could actually simulate reality for you I just need to know, like, where are your walls or your things. So it could be that, like, realism uh, and and I totally am biased, obviously, but I believe in that it, it, that is the future. Like, machine learning models. In fact, there's a lot of R and D and a lot of investment in creating like real time solutions for that too, and videos, as you've probably already seen already. Mm-hmm. So it could become much more like if you could think about it, you could just have it. And then the challenge now is like, well, in our current you know, kind of a uh, layer of other technology that exists, what do we have to do? Well, we have to build CDs from that. Okay, how do you how do you get it from that just vision in your mind? And again, some of the tools that we have kind of already are pieces of the puzzle that will allow us to do that. But essentially it's kind of a, a grander vision where you could envision it, you could see that thing and you could the pipeline to get that into a way where it's like, okay, I can actually build this. Like I can actually get yeah. documents that that uh you know, so it's visual edition like it's like a portion portion of it, and we kind of are building a product for that that also sponsors the grander vision to like, okay, how can we go further than that? How do we go to geometry creation? How do we go to? Uh, and again, we kind of have pieces of the puzzles siloed out a little bit, kind of denied to connect it now. But that's kind of a path that we're looking at that this could lead to.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to think about it, kind of identifying the endpoint. I mean, I guess we've always done this to a to a degree in architectural design, right? Which is, you're you're doing visualization along the way to kind of show where you are, but you're always also trying to show a vision of what it's going to become at some point, right? And so, the idea even of real time rendering is is like painting a picture that doesn't exist yet, right. uh, applying, making a, an environment like a fully immersive environment. It could be in VR. It might be on a two-dimensional screen that you walk through in real time with Enscape or any other real-time rendering program, right? It's like, this is a vision of where we're headed, where we want to get to. But you're saying like, this is, it's even more realistic than that, right? Because what it it paints in these details based on whatever was used to train it. And it's kind of like ChatGPT where it's just a, putting a word after another word based on probability, right? <laughs> of what's been said before. And you're doing that with imagery. We are doing that with pixels. You're doing that with elements in a rendering. It's like, okay, I've been trained on this model. And usually when it's looking through glass, it sees this kind of thing on the other side of it. Right. I think it's so, it's so weird. It right? is like to me, it's, it is such a weird paradigm. And, and when you create an image like this that then be, somebody latches onto, like a client or even just a designer, somebody during the process, and they're like, yeah, that's, that's where I want to head to. And then you have to figure out how to get there, right? And that's where right. the value of an architect and understanding space and understanding how things go together actually comes into play. I think what's really game-changing about this is you democratize these tools enough, and it's already there. Anybody can right. spool up MidJourney. Anybody can download Discord and and go into Mid MidJourney. Is when we we as architects hated it before when they came to us with a SketchUp model. Now they're gonna come with a, this idea that is like in their minds figured out done. This is what I want. I want this a frame this one that looks over this site that looks exactly like my site that I own right and, and they're going to come to an architect with that and they're and, and so should we be scared of that or is it should we just expect it and then figure out how, how to give them their vision, figure out how to deliver that project to them. This is the kind of thing that everybody's kind of grappling with right now. It's like there, there's a there's a big fear there and there's also a lot of opportunity there.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. It's it's kind of like, is it going to take away our jobs or something like that? I think that's kind of like where this kind of alludes to. It's a parallel made question around that. But uh, yeah, it's very interesting. I think uh, the way I see it is the cat's out of the bag. It's going to happen regardless or not. The technology yeah, kind yeah. of expanding right. towards that. But again, I think the way I see it, at least in the shorter term, is it's like people should be using that technology to be able to have the higher bandwidth. That way, you know, you stay kind of competent, and not competent, but competitive uh, so that, you know, you kind of, uh, um, you know, have access and, you know, you don't, I think it's a bandwidth thing. And also with the shortage of, you know, like the amount of architects that are able to even design, like a lot of the stuff that's actually in, in cities and that is being built is a lot of it is cookie cutter that is not actually even for sure that design. So having clients and, and architecture itself be more accessible to, to, you know, kind of broader masses. I think it's a good thing overall. And I think, well, over time, it's just going to be allowing, um, you know, it's just going to increase bandwidth, basically. And people can, like, actually, they still have to go through the process and still have to get through, you know, uh, all, all the processing, uh, uh, you know, for the permit system and, you know, having someone to actually physically build it, that could be kind of a limitation. Like, actual, you know, maybe robotics are going to assist it there, but that would be kind of the next limiting factor. Like, right now, it's not. Like, it's the opposite. Like, architecture is very, serving a very select, number of people in the world of uh, yeah. truly designed buildings, number. right? And yep. if that could increase, I mean, that just makes, you know, a beautiful, more beautiful world. Like it's, I think it's net positive and net good for for the world to have that. I, I agree with that. I, I, I wonder what you
0: think about uh, the output that I'm seeing from, that we're all seeing from these image generators influencing what people want in their buildings because I think what we've seen over time with the cookie cutter buildings that you just mentioned is a complete watering down, dumbing down of building systems, building materials. I mean, every strip mall looks exactly the same. They go up really fast. They're done really cheaply. They don't last very long. I mean, that to me, they're all the different components of cookie cutter. And when you look at these images, I mean, there's, an amazing level of artistry in them, You, it's depending on the prompt, right? It's like right. people who aren't prompting towards minimalist modern architecture, people who are prompting more towards fantastical stuff. I wonder if that's going to influence what people want to build because in many regards, we've lost that over the years, right? It's because of the uh, this watering down, but also because of the cost of things. And, and it's not to say that these fantastical images don't cost a lot to build. I mean, obviously when I see the curving glass and the buildings made out of feathers and all all of these things, right. It's like, uh, nobody can afford to build that. But at the same time, people are going to want to see those kinds of spaces be built though, that kind of architecture be built because it's like, wow, that looks incredible. I get excited about that. It does benefit aesthetically, but in more ways than that, uh, the, the culture that, that inhabits that space, right? The people that inhabit that space. So it does, it, it's interesting to me to think about it, like what it could do to influence the way that we build again, because so much of what we do now has gone away from that. We as the, you know, the building industry, and that that includes a lot of people who are not architects at all, right? Who don't care about design at all. When right? there's a lot of contractors out there who don't give a crap right. about design, right? Stand and on. they'll deliver a building any day of the week because that's what they do, right? But but they don't really love design like architects love design uh, and totally generalizing here. But it it is, I I kind of do hope for that, right? Because people go to Italy, right? You can go to Venice and you can visit the Duomo and you could go to Rome and you could go to Florence and you can go to Paris and you can visit these cathedrals. And there's something about those that is absolutely incredible. And yet in the buildings that we build today, there is nothing like that for the most part. And except for the, the those very small percentage of capital A architecture that actually gets built.
1: Right. So I think, I think I am in a parallel to how you're thinking about it too, where I think the problem so far has been supply and demand and it's much more inexpensive. And even now it's very expensive to afford a home. Even if it's built from like, you know, uh, you know, a cookie cutter one, materials. you get to, yeah, you right. get to pick the tile, the paint on the walls and, you know, maybe the, not even the exterior because, you know, it's, it's, let's say it's a, neighborhood where it's HOA or something like that so you you have pretty minimal selection and even that you know will cost you a lot so a lot of that has been kind of the system that systems that we have right now have been optimized for supply and man like, i just want the cheapest thing but you know the biggest size maybe like you know the three bedrooms and, and and two baths but i want to pay the least amount for that okay well then you have to get the same you know module because even our builders could build the same thing, yeah, and over. and it's you know, there is an economy in that of, of scale we're replicating that. Uh, but it could come up with like if there's a consensus and there's a, enough, I think, momentum of people wanting more, you know, aesthetically pleasing things and are more in tune with that because they have this technology more accessible. It could be that other products or other tools could come about that makes it accessible. Like okay, well, no one is asking for those kind of details. And we've even lost the art of even knowing how to make those to a certain degree uh, to that same level. I mean, it was possible before, but just we, we haven't done it. So uh, that could be productized to a certain degree. I mean, there's a lot of manufacturing in the building industry that have, you know, have automated and made things so much simpler because of, you know, what we've prioritized and what the demand was for. And it's a lot faster to build things. But, um, yeah, there's not really that need from the customer, at least expressed. With the current value that it's being offered, like, oh, yeah, that'll cost us. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, twice as much. No, no, obviously, I don't Forget care about. It. Yeah, I, that's not right. for, I'm not, I don't fit in that category of, of people could, could afford something like that. But if that becomes more affordable, it could be something that, that, uh, you know, just society demands.
0: Yeah. And I think it has something to do with just the overall, I, I hate to say marketing, right? But mm. that kind of what it is, it's just like, what is in people's mindset? Like, what are they seeing? What are they what what is coming back at their senses? Is it is it images like this, or is it the images that most architects already produce, which is like because of that supply and demand, architects start to go down those they, they kind of set their boundaries that they go mm-hmm. down and they're gonna be like, Well, you know, they're making decisions on their clients' behalf to say, Okay, well, I, I kind of don't think that they're gonna go for that. So I'm gonna dumb my idea down to this, right? Mm-hmm. Or I think I don't think they can afford this. So I'm not even going to ask them that question. I'm going to design it like this. And, and now to me, like there, because it doesn't cost anything really to produce these images, it's like, okay, you can throw out these, these ideas and get a reaction, right? You can also inspire somebody to get, get those, those, I don't know, just to me, it, it, it is kind of this interesting chicken and egg and like we've we've produced this end goal now how do we build something to that how do we how do we build the technology how do we build the products how do we build the the construction details how do we build the implementation of all these things to actually make those things happen it is a really interesting kind of like are we are we pushing forward or are we pulling from the future right uh, pulling everybody forward into that it's a, it's a very interesting paradigm shift that we're seeing happen
1: Yeah. I, I would not underestimate. Yeah. I would not underestimate like the someone's like aha moment or when they get inspired, like a client. I mean, we, I mean, architecture firms do that all the time in competitions. Like you go, you shoot for the moment, like that's the You're trying to get an emotional response and a connection. Like it's almost illogical. Like I really love that. I can't even use words, how to describe why, but I really love that idea or that concept and, and how that's put together. So kind of instilling that, I think, it's, it's a human thing, I think, where it's like, you kind of almost kind of, it's so, you get so attractive, like illogically to, to certain ideas like that. And if you could actually generate some of those ideas to see if you could, maybe that person doesn't respond that way to those certain things. So that, or, or, you know, you could kind of, it doesn't cost you as much as it did before to even explore something like that, that get a bit more extravagant. Uh, and so like, as a designer, that I think that's becomes very valuable because then you could just kind of like, okay, I do have certain things about program. This building is the right size. The massing is right. The site, you know, works with the site based on the orientation and all that. So all that knowledge is instilled there. But then, you know, you could play with kind of, you know, details at what level of detail you want. Do you want to just micro details or do you want it all the way to like almost change the massing type of details? Subtle. So I think I think that's a really interesting point about like just making that ability more accessible and, uh, you know, kind of having that discourse with the client to be able to just make decisions and allow, you know, at least the vision. Because until you see it, even us, I know we're like, I mean, my, my background is in architecture and we visualize buildings. You know, we could look at a flow plan and you can understand the flow plan. Clients don't do that. I mean, we had time to, you know, flex that muscle to learn that. Like an image does so much more than than anything yeah. that could be like a 2D drawing that we could produce otherwise.
0: Yeah. Super visual audience listening to this podcast. Super visual profession. And so to your point, I, I agree with that. It's like, that is the the sustenance that so many of us feed on. And so to be able to, this is a playground. Yeah. I mean, it is a tool, it is a playground and it is, is something that you could lose hours and hours and hours too. But is it really losing it? If you're doing that exploration, if you're stretching those muscles, uh, I, I don't think it is. I mean, to me, this is like the best kind of playground there is because it's all about the creative process. And, you don't need to show everything that comes back right. to you in that in that process. And it is kind of your job to then curate the ones that you do want to use and to move forward with, just like any other design process. Like this is actually a pretty incredible tool. I'm, I'm, I'm curious about the kind of the implementation. So I've seen some videos, definitely can't assume that everybody has seen the stuff that you guys have posted on your website and on LinkedIn, but can you kind of just spell out what it's like to use the product for people? I mean- just, I've seen stuff from a very rudimentary SketchUp model, right? Just boxes stacked on top of each other and giving some pretty cool output to stuff that's a lot more detailed. So maybe just talk through what it's actually like to use a product, how it works, why, how somebody would go about using it.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, let's say you're uh, in Revit, let's say, and you're just having kind of like you model some five walls and, uh, you know, it's very mass stage. In the massing stage, uh, we have kind of one slider for like geometry to override. So if you max that slider all the way up, it tries to, you know, it'll do more aggressive and more progressive kind of things to that that base mass. So it would add windows or it would add a lot of detail that doesn't exist there based on what you've written in your prompt, basically. And um, so, yeah, so that's kind of like, the earliest on where you just kind of have blocks, like boxes. Uh, and then, you know, it'll And fill give up. an
0: idea of like what a what a prompt you would write into there. What what would that be like?
1: Sure, like uh, like a modern mil- uh, minimal building um, with curtain glass wall or something like that. Just You want to kind of spell out some of the materiality that is in there uh, and maybe some color palette like, you know, with, you know, green or orange or aluminum ACM panels or Kind of specify that and you kind of separate them in there. And then okay. you'd render that. And the way it works is, you know, every time you render, uh, it uses a new seed. So then you could render that same prop like 10 times and you might get like get five good different. ones and five. Yeah, exactly every time. Uh, mm-hmm. You could lock the seed too, but I'm getting into details now. So if you wanted to keep that and just want to, let's say you like an aesthetic and you just want to push, pull, or move around, change your mask, but you like that aesthetic, what does it look like if I change my geometry? You could keep that aesthetic and you're just playing with the mask itself, the geometry, not the aesthetic. Um, I think
0: it's really important that you actually said that because I think a lot of people wonder if I find, if I find a, a look I like, I don't want to lose that. Right. Right. Like that I, a lot of people don't even know what's possible here. So it's, I think it's important that you brought that that up.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You want to save that look and then, Oh actually working on a, a whole system that lets you kind of bring in a bunch of other ones and automatically like uh, set the UI from like other renders that you've done in the past. Really cool. Okay, um, cool. But that's kind of like that, that. That's kind of like the main slider, really. Top one at the very top, and then if you lower that, the more you lower it, the more of the uh, models being retained, basically. So if you go all the way to the max, it's like you know you'll get all the even the line details. So if you have like a certain mullion, mullions like designed a certain way, uh, that will come through. And all all that it would do is the, it will just kind of uh, you could think about like a, like a, like a sketch. It just fills in the colors that colors that in for you, basically, and colors within the lines because you you've constrained it to that level of degree and then basically that's where it start it's starting to be used more as a render engine but it's like okay, I'm just rendering okay. I want my geometry I've already modeled I spent time to model my door to look that way but I don't have a good wood texture that also has a good reflectance with this other material by it and I, or I have the time to spend to do that because I'm gonna change it to metal next so I'm trying metal and wood right away and they have different like you know levels of reflectance or something like that so That kind of gradient lets you kind of, depending on what stage you are or when you're trying to create a rendering, lets you kind of uh, uh, do that basically, depending on how much detail you want to preserve in the model.
0: This episode is made possible with support from Confluence. If you've been listening to the Troxel podcast, you've heard of our next sponsor for this episode, Confluence. But we have something new to announce. Confluence is now more than invite-only live events. It's now also a podcast. And it's very cool, if I do say so myself, because it's a joint collaboration between me here at Troxel and Randall Stevens of Avail, who is the creator of Confluence, as well as having been on this podcast a couple of times talking about the AEC tech industry that we all love. So, who's the show for? Well, have you ever written software? Or wondered why the software you use works the way it does? Or want to find out how the people who make the software in our industry do their work? then this is the show for you. I like to describe the Confluence podcast as the director's commentary track for AEC industry software because in each episode, we go behind the scenes of AEC software development and talk directly with the developer to dissect a feature and their workflows and get an inside view of how and why they made the decisions they did while creating the software you use. Randall describes it as the AEC industry software version of the How I Built This podcast, which we are both huge fans of. Confluence is a visual show in which our guests show their work. We think you're really going to like it, and we already have a few episodes out for you to watch. You can find it on YouTube and Spotify right now. Just search for Confluence Podcast on those platforms, or click the direct links I've put in the show notes for this episode. Go check it out, and please subscribe. No, really. Just just go check it out and subscribe right now. This episode will still be here when you get back. My thanks to Confluence for supporting this episode of the Troxel Podcast. So this is all kind of coming from a global perspective which is like d- d- no matter where you are in the design process, you could be really early on, super basic massing, or you could be a lot further along, maybe DD level. You've got your curtain wall panels defined. You've got your overhangs, you've got thicknesses kind of correct. And you could kind of adjust that slider down as you move along, right? The more and more decisions you make in the modeling process, you want to retain those decisions and just have it become more of a pure rendering engine the further you move along. And yet at the same time, like you don't have control over this wall is wood, right? Or this roof is white. You don't have that kind of a level of specificity when you're when you're prompting it, right? So You still get a lot of variation showing up in the results that are coming back to you throughout that process. So, And I think what's interesting about this is kind of just kind of setting the, the expectation in people's minds about what this tool is good for, right? Instead of expecting it to work like another tool used in the past because it doesn't, right? And this is a new kind of tool in the toolbox of a designer. And I think that's that's interesting, right, because this shifts the way we approach design and decision making as we move forward, depending on even who's driving that process. I mean, you, like I said earlier, you could have a client coming to you with images that they've used to make decisions about what they want to do as a, even a starting point, right? I think it's it's kind of fascinating to think about how this shifts our approach in the design process based on these tools that have come along.
1: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that's definitely, I mean, it reminds me of uh, when I was working at one of the first architectural firms that I worked at, we still kind of did that, but in a manual way, you had like a magazines and like, okay, our client's like these five ones and we make like a design booklet and and like, okay, okay, these are the great great images. And then, you know, we'd walk through, do you like this one? Do you not like this one? And then per that, we would kind of come up with the design together. And so uh, it's kind of similar to that, but way more automated. Uh, Yeah. And yeah. The technology is, uh, you know, really updating really rapidly. So, uh, like things that you've mentioned, like that would be possible in the future. Like, let's say if you do want this wall to be, okay, this wall is going to be wood, but then I don't know which kind of wood I want. Like, okay, I want like right. oak or uh, you know white oak or red oak, or you know you could actually just have that granularity. Like, I don't I know the category, but I don't know the specific one or the sheen or the paint on the walls. Like, you could just have that kind of micro. Uh, uh, ability to, to, to finesse those things. So yeah, like you said, I think it's kind of like uh, already getting really close to like spreading that entire gamut of like, you know, early SD through like DD. Like I want to Mm -hmm. just try something new, this little space.
0: I think it's super, super interesting. And I do think we are just scratching the surface. Like you've said it several different ways. The cat's out of the bag, the tip of the iceberg, we're scratching the surface, the toothpaste is out of the tube, but we're not going back to the, you can't get the toothpaste back in the tube. We can't hit undo on this. It's already here. Yeah. And it is going to be interesting to see how the development moves forward to have the designer's wisdom specify certain elements look a certain way in this process. I do. That's all going to come. Right. Yeah. But for now, where we are, I think what's super interesting about this is, is how it's changing the way in which we can produce imagery. And design and inspiration along the way it's it's pretty crazy to think about and i think one of the things that really blows me away about the image generating through through this rendering process and where i actually can influence what the outcome is going to look like based on geometry that i build as a as a designer versus even some of the other stuff that we've seen where it's like mid-journey right designed this building and okay. now people are looking for ways to reverse engineer that back into a 3D model, like we've seen Kadim and, and different tools like that come out over the past couple of years, right, where where it's like f- go full on to the end and then reverse engineer that back versus us kind of helping that process move forward. We're making our informed decisions on form and space and adjacency, and then we're, we're using Verus to visualize that. I think what's super interesting to me, though, is just how realistic it looks, right? Yeah. I've always been blown away. And and, and what's crazy about that, because I also have a visualization background like you, I was always really into rendering and modeling yeah. materiality and lighting and translucence and transparency and reflection and specularity and bump maps and normal maps and displacement maps. And like, okay, like I, I get it. Like I learned how to be an expert in all that stuff, right? And- because these models were trained on photorealistic imagery and photography of real world application, you know real world outcomes or right. outputs real world being kind of a, a loaded term there right because it could just be a rendering right sure. <laughs> like, exactly but it's like yeah. through through visualization over the decades right it's been trained was used to train these models so what does glass look like in front of metal panel What does glass look like with lights behind it on or off? What does it look like at this time of day? Like I never, ever expected that to be the way that this would turn because I've always controlled that. I've always had to become a computer scientist basically to understand how materials work and look at materials in a day-to-day basis. Like I'm looking at my wall right here and I'm looking at the texture on the wall and I'm thinking, how would I reproduce that in 3D? Yeah. I never once thought it would be like, oh, well, you just train the computer to do that based on all the other images in the world that have ever existed, and now it can just do that. That's crazy to me. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, me too. I wonder too. how you guys think about all that.
1: No, I, th- I think there's, I remember, uh, so back in uh, uh, university, uh, I remember when I was learning like uh, Maxwell Render, which is like an unbiased yeah. rendering engine, render, and I was it's still
0: I, I love to Maxwell Render.
1: Yeah, it's yeah. really good even now it's it's one of the best I mean they claim it's the best, most physically accurate. and I remember I would start when I was learning that and like if you could layer some you could make some big complex materials like the material editor is right. do so many things like we we're saying displacement maps and anistropy or whatever like you wanted all those different things, specular maps uh and I would look at much as like how would I like look i would I would how would I classify would I this thing, like, yeah. That. Like, I know this yeah, is actually yeah. reflected because white is reflected, actually reflects white, the color white. And you learn about materiality, and the physics of materiality, and all that science. And then, like, you, like, I would look oh this, this table here, has like a, a very gentle sheet with a high roughness or so, roughness or something like that. So, like, I would like, oh, and now what would I do with the texture layer? Oh, I would put that, that would be like a, I have to make sure it's seamless and all that. And, like, so I, I, I remember when I was learning that, I would look around a lot and, like, start to kind of, like, oh, what's an eggshell color? How would I, you know, I would think about that. But that takes, like that's resources, and that's like dedication to learn all of it those is, things. Yeah. and uh, architects, like you have to learn that and code. And like there's so yeah. much to learn and even more to learn as like you know, you know codes grow and and civilization grows and and things more things are invented, new types of buildings exist and things like that, new 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 functionalities exist in our civilization. So it's just an ever growing thing. like this is like the shortcut to that, like, well, what if you don't have to learn how to do all that stuff? And it's like, <laughs> like we're learning it, we got it, we did a good job. Uh I mean, I th- I still think there's a space for that for like physics simulation. That it will never go away. But same thing with like, you know, painting, like that's didn't fully go away, but that was like the way before photography, that was the way that you would, you know, kind of get portrait of yourself and it was limited to a certain class of people that would be able to afford that. Uh in a similar vein, I think this this technology has kind of has a pattern parallel uh, uh pattern there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I, that's, a, that's a good point. And, and I also think that there's like this misunderstanding about what it took to become a visualization expert, mm-hmm. right? There's obvious, I've had the guys from Neoscape on this podcast a couple of times who are visualization experts to the nth degree, mm-hmm. so much so that that's all they do. Right. And there's people who work in firms where that's all they do because it takes yes. a level of commitment, dedication to that craft to be so good at it. And... It's interesting to me that I I kind of assume the people who are making the decrees, who are kind of freaking out about this, uh, maybe they're not paying attention to it enough now that I say that out loud, but it's just like they don't fully understand what it takes Mm -hmm. to produce images. And there's always been this battle in architecture between visualization people and, and designers or project team people, right? Which is the design's always changing, we're always modifying geometry up to the last minute, and the and the renderings are due right now as well, right? And so, why aren't the renderings done? Yeah, because there is no easy button there, right? There, yeah. there just isn't. If you really and and tools have come along to make that easier, right? Enscape, right, a live link between a model and a and a good enough rendering in real time right. is absolutely incredible, and that is also kind of skewed perception of of. Real, what it takes realistically to produce a great image, and it has democratized images basically to the point where they're free. Right, all I have to do is spin yeah. the model around, change the time of day, maybe I mess with the clouds, and boom, I got a new image, and it's incredible. It's it's fantastic. Yeah. And now we're taking that even farther, and I wonder like, what this does to our process. How do we need to be adjusting our process to take advantage of this rather than be scared of it? Right. Rather than this is another tool in the toolbox and thinking about how we adjust our workflows, how are people thinking about that enough? What do you think? I mean, you guys make a tool that makes this easy for people that democratizes access to it in a tool they already know how to use because they're already building their model. They're building it in SketchUp or Rhino or Revit. And now Varys comes in and says, like, we can. What does this look like in the snow? What does this look like on the beach? What does this look like? You have a lot more sky's the limit kind of possibility when it comes to rendering now uh in a moment right i can say what does this look like in the snow and what does this look like in the summer and i can do that at the with a shift in the prompt how do you think that the you've said it before maybe the answer is you know just just thinking about the uh what was the word that you used you 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 talked about kind of the the essence of it Boiling down to us being able to, uh, you know, use our time more wisely. Right. I, I, you, you said something to that. To that, it's like, but, but, how do people actually need to be thinking about this and how it shifts how they approach uh, visualization as a piece of the puzzle when it comes to delivering a project?
1: Yeah. So I'll I'll say this because it's, uh, when I was a bid manager, this, you know, was happening in the previous firm that I was work, working at when Enscape came out. Like that was a game changer for us. Like before Enscape, we always went to 3ds Max and we brought in the Revit model and we did all the textures. We textured everything, and obviously you could do a lot more in 3ds Max. We sometimes, if we had the budget, add animations, add VR walkthroughs, so people could walk in there and like animate things. But that was like a one week lead time sometimes. Yes. Or three-day yes. three, three right. day lead time where it's like, okay, well, you have to finish your thing and then three days is a deadline. And you have
0: to tell the designer to stop. Not like, you know, yes. you really have to stop. You, yeah, you can't give me an updated model anymore, right? Because right. pencil's down, now we get to work, exactly. Right? And, and if you change the design, we have to redo work. And and that has shrunk down to like nothing
1: now. Exactly. exactly. Yes. So like with like when back then when yes. Enscape came about, like, what was an interesting uh, discovery is like, oh well, with Enscape, we're okay with not having that highest quality. It's yeah. good enough because I'm yes. staying in the same environment and I can move this door five feet over and it's I could see it. It's 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 fine, and that was kind of like more of a tool for the designer even. So the like all our designers are like, now not their render, they could render stuff. Like we could, you can just yes. render it. We don't have to wait on that person that's full time doing just right. that, and that person might have other jobs like queued up, like. I'm doing renderings for this client, this one, and then you have to get yours done, basically. No, no. Everyone has access to this tool that, you know, could use that as a design tool, even. This is a further step within the same vein where it's like, well, now you could get really good results like photorealism. And not only that, but you could explore as you're designing and moving elements around, you could get inspiration. It's like your digital Pinterest superimposed onto your like 3D model. So, Fully it's, integrated, right? Exactly, and it's it's and so you could do you could do all those different that required way more skills for different specialists to do within you know you could just continue designing and you could visualize it for yourself and for you know uh, uh for for others that you want to show it to clients things like that. So it's kind of within that paradigm where it's like like it's the same thing but in a different way you, you put it. It's like you, it's yeah. really compressing that that allows like one architect to do a lot more basically without learning this whole spectrum of tools and, and, and techniques uh, on their tool belt because they have already so many things that they have to learn.
0: I, I've had the Enscape guys on this podcast before and we've really talked about it as a what what was a game changer about Enscape beyond just like images happening in real time was that it actually becomes a tool to help make decisions. Yes. Right, and and so therefore now, a rendering engine is a design tool and that was a paradigm shift because before that it was rendering comes at the end, like right? That is something. Oh yeah. We visualize things at the end of this milestone, not during this milestone. Right. Are you kidding me? Yeah. Like when I learned how to 3d model, we modeled in wireframe. It wasn't even shaded, right? We yeah. had to do it because the graphics cards couldn't do anything. Right. And so now, I mean, paradigm shift, we make decisions, by looking at this in a much more high fidelity manner visually throughout the process. And now that just got taken up a notch, a big, big, big notch, right? Which is you don't, you can model like the most basic thing and you can in Veris type in a prompt and get something that actually looks like a building, whether it's realistic or not, but it's like, Okay. I like that. I'm going to go in that direction, that piece of that. I like that piece of that. I'm going to explore that. And it right. becomes a prompter for you. I mean, it's like a circular prompt. Now you're prompting it. It's prompting you back. Right.
1: Visually, Cause you get inspired. Yes. Right.
0: It, and I think that is an incredible paradigm shift once again, that we're kind of dealing with and figuring out. And so when it comes to like this, how do we change our workflow? How do we address these technology changes as we evolve together, technology and architecture, Maybe that's it. Like we're prompting it and it's prompting us back. And I think that's what's kind of exciting about, about this. Is if we think about it like that, all of a sudden it becomes a tool that I can understand how to use it. Because we do have talked about the lack of control that you have in this situation. You guys have a slider, right? Right. Geometry retention. Are we going to keep this? How much of my model do I want you to respect versus not? And and by just playing with that slider, it's we're kind of telling it how much to prompt us back. How how right. much have we decided that we want to keep? How right. much have we decided that no, I'm open. I'm 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 open to seeing what you come up with here based on everything you've ever seen, everything you've ever been trained on. I think it's it's super interesting paradigm shift yeah. that's and going on right
1: now. I'll mention one quick thing. We're about to release uh, uh, another feature coming soon. Where if you wanted to have variable, like, okay, this is set, but this is that set. Like have variable amount of like respect this a lot, but this now, like I'm playing here, but you can maybe play a little bit here. So like we're, we're constantly like, you know, like improving things and, and trying to add, uh, uh, different features that kind of complete that story of synergy where you're prompting back and forward at right, the level of levels of degree and where in your design have you not made those decisions so that you could continue that dialogue.
0: Hmm. It's interesting. How, where did that come from? Does that come from your users? Is that coming from you guys? Where, where is that idea?
1: Yeah. So uh, we have our forums. So a lot of people have said, like, I wish I had, like the whole geometry override was a, a, a multiple times I like, well, can I just actually have this? I don't want to just kind of explore things because then it's just a toy where I'm just getting a lot of ideas, but I'm not that at that stage of the, the progress. So that was uh, a very, you know, concerted effort to like, okay, try to really, okay, how do we own that and try to get best settings and the best kind of setup so that we could deliver that um you know in rhino Revit and sketchup and then this is another portion where people actually have talked about that and well uh, there's i think in our forums you have like all like we start to log like all the different things with like one master kind of list like it is that people want this 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 then kind of rank ordered it in our roadmap and then we just kind of like okay this is this was a thing that was asked more than t- a few times so we got to get this one next so that we just characterize things like that but yeah that's definitely likes uh, and we've also heard that feedback from a lot of times you have like demos with clients and we talk to them and we see how they use it which is really cool it's such a um, like anyone out there who's like you know writing software like just seeing someone else using your tool is so eye opening oh like we have um, bill had a call the other day with someone who like wasn't getting the right results and uh, the app was like, oh, this is just crap. Like, when are you guys going to make the good version where it's, like, going to give you the you know, the good results? So from that, within 10 minutes, kind to of like, oh, wow, you guys are, like, killing it. Like, what's going on here? Like, why didn't I know? <laughs> this is a great tool. So, like, just kind of seeing how how your end users are are, are, are you know, using the software is such an eye-opener because you could kind of, you know, configure and sculpt your UI such that, you know, it allows people to get that journey. But, yeah, a, a lot of the most of these features are kind of, like, things that people have, have brought up either on calls, demos or our forum.
0: Right. I I want to give you a chance to talk about some of these other things a little bit at least to tease them out there um but before we do that. I just have one more question about the Verus and the AI rendering. Is where where do you actually see this going in the next year? I mean to give people an idea of with your very, you know, boots on the ground, you're really grounded in in the the research side of this and what's actually you're obviously producing a product that is taking people on this journey. What do you see coming that you could maybe tell people about?
1: Yeah. A year is a long time in this space. I know. That's a that's, lot. That's why I only said a year. I mean, I, yeah, no, <laughs> I, I, I'm pretty confident that, uh, again, mid journey is kind of the lead, uh, leader in ability of quality, a like text to image, just amount of quality. It, it's almost in the in the show bowl from, from photographs, uh, even, you know, very beautiful outfits. Uh, I think, uh, We'll be there within a year for like you know your model, and you can get those kind of that kind of quality from your just whatever you have in your model to the degree that you've modeled it. Uh, I, I'm pretty confident that we'll be there. Uh, all the things that are being developed are being developed such that are uh, they're smaller footprints, so that we can actually lower even the amount of like VRAM and, and hardware that it takes, so even faster I think. So speed, we're going to see that, and and high resolutions. They're being trained in high resolutions and high resolutions. So all those things are, are I think, are going to be coming. I think that's a given uh, within a year. Uh, we're also looking at uh, kind of bridging some of our tools that start to kind of, and this will be the beginning of how do we kind of start to, and we've already seen this in the industry a bit from other people that are exploring with exploring this, but how do you get some of those ideas that are being uh, rendered back to your model as metadata? Like, let's say if I'm just rendering uh, this and I'm, I'm high, you know, do not override my geometry, higher high geometry retention. Well, you know, like, I want to keep those materials. I really like those materials. How do you generate those? That's pretty trivial to do. So I think we'll see more tools where it, t- it starts to bleed beyond just rendering. It's trying to like, okay, if decisions were made. Like, I don't want to manually. It goes back to like the comput- computational, yeah, yeah, designer yeah. Where it's yeah. like, okay, it's, this is just science. You just take this input and connect it to this input in general, things like that. So we'll see kind of a bleed. Those are
0: all really practical. Those yeah. are super practical things, right? It's like you get an image and it's like, okay, yeah, I, I, I'm i going to go with that, at least for now. And I, I'm going to say, yep, take that wood. That's glass. That's this color of metal, whatever. And and actually just get that back into my model without me having to do the manual labor to catch it back up to that point. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah. Sick like that. All right. Well, let's talk about some of your other stuff. Let's talk about uh, Glyph, and you you mentioned uh, Morphus and Helix. Just give people an idea of like the suite of what Evolve is is offering here, as far as your your kind of latest products that are coming out. I you are always interested in saving people time. And yeah, that to me is is the big deal. Like that, if you could put it all under one banner, that to me is what it's about. Which I think really speaks back to your BIM manager heritage and your your visualization heritage, which is like you see how much you come from practice. You understand the labor involved to get to these points. So maybe let's just put it all under that bucket so people get it, but now you can break it down into the individual components. Uh, Let's start with Helix.
1: Sure. And I'll add one other thing to what you said is because we're from the industry and and, uh, uh, like you said, we're we're from, we're trying to just automate things. Uh, It's also that like we're, How do I put this? So basically like a lot of times, like because we're grassroots, we've had, uh, 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 you know, have had to do these things manually uh, with the tools that we've done is, um, I guess I recently listened to your Spectacle podcast and they handle operability. And this is a good segue to Felix. But basically uh, we didn't build a tool that does everything for everyone. We're we're seeing like, we're cherry, we're asymmetric is what I'm trying to say. We're, uh, we're going where the people are. So like if people are on Revit a lot, we're, a lot of our stack is developed out of that because that's where the people are. If people are in SketchUp, we, that's why we married those two things because there was a solution for that. So, uh, a lot of it, other times our approach is a bit asymmetrical because of we come from the industry and because we're trying to kind of address the consensus of people how they kind of graduate towards different tools. So again, that could have been more succinct, but. <laughs> Uh, anyways, so no, yeah, totally Helix.
0: makes sense because I've I've wondered myself like why did you guys develop Helix right. to bridge the gap between SketchUp and Revit and you're basically answering that question. You're saying right. that's where the people are. This is the thing that people keep asking for.
1: Yeah, yeah. So yeah, yeah let's start with Helix. So Helix actually started uh, I think uh, in 2016, uh, way before I joined. Actually, I joined in 2019, and so that was like the version one of Helix, and that was really kind of stemming for a lot of. Uh, so Bill was a uh, working with. Uh, you know, as a big manager in the past and had to have done that problem. And he tried to get people like, just don't use SketchUp, like go to this other thing. And he failed that battle. So like that was kind of a stem from that. Like I really, I wish I had this and as an end user and let's just see if we can do something about it. That's when that was the nascency of that tool where uh, it got started. Uh, We actually put a, we took it off the market for a while. We had some issues with it. And then uh, we kind of paused development on it. We didn't have like resources to invest in that tool for a little bit. And then um, later after I joined, I think within a few months, we kind of revamped that and we started developing us. that's when we released the version two of Helix, uh, which kind of took away the file format. Uh, We used to have a Helix format that you kind of use, go back and forth. Uh, And then we just kind of like, no, it's just stream data from from SketchUp to Revit and Revit to SketchUp. And there's a lot of users, both of those two tools that you want to kind of uh, talk to. And what that allows us to do is have kind of this asymmetrical approach where it's like, okay, I just want, to get stuff from SketchUp into Revit with textures and UV mapping, so the textures are correctly like aligned. Like everyone wants that. <laughs> so like as you know, different APIs are uh, being opened. We built that essentially so that you could get that. But then again, we also want walls to be walls and roofs to be wo- roofs. So the very first version of of, of Helix was that everything was dimified essentially. Like everything in, in SketchUp that is a, wa- a wall or a roof or something like that actually came in as a native roof element, a native wall with the slope and everything so that it, it's as if you modeled it in Revit. That was always kind of the substrate where we wanted to really make sure that that's the foundation. We started there basically. And so the challenge we've had with that is like, how do you get both the map those things? So we started to automate some of those things and trying to like, okay, let's expand and, and allow some, you know, let's say you have a mannequin that you have for your store. We you don't want to have to have that parametric that them. But if we were to bring it in as a blob, of, you know, a mesh blob, how could we do it such that the best way the most BIM way, and now polluting your model and slowing down and adding size. So we've you know, given the best practices of how we could bring certain content into Revit. And then we also could bring Revit content back into SketchUp, but that's, that leg is not as well-developed since there was a lot, of, a lot of tools out there that already does that. And it's not such a hard challenge to do, actually. The biggest challenge was getting unstructured data from SketchUp into structured BIM data into Revit. And I think we have a pretty good solution for that.
0: Nice. And I guess the question becomes, has it actually forced people to model any better in SketchUp to begin with? Because that's, I mean, you think about the transition from SketchUp to Revit in any firm, and it's like, this is fantastic because it's a chance to start over, right? And actually build the model with a new set of insight, right? Because a lot of times when people are designing in SketchUp, it really is a clay model. It really is loose. It really is not accurate for good reasons, right? I And I think that's one thing that people who say you should do everything in this tool, usually Revit, don't understand is that design process needs to be loose and messy and this and that and non-structured and all yeah. of those things. And therefore, like don't put those constraints on that person because if you were to, you were not going to get as you're not going to get as interesting of a result as one example of a word that I could have used in that sentence, right? So uh, I'm asking though now, like has this actually kind of created a new standard for which people need to model to in SketchUp to get good results into Revit so that you actually do save that time? Or is that still kind of where it's always been?
1: I think it varies. Um, More power users are more, you know, kind of, because of that because what it does is if you you could model things way faster in SketchUp, like large masses moving things around and we've Absolutely. even had a, a client who was using it like <laughs> he was uh he had a deadline like the next day and it's like okay i'm gonna give helix a try if it breaks because there was not enough time of the day to finish to model all that and revit uh with levels and everything and curtain walls and all that and like i have this thing it's already masked if it breaks i'll miss the deadline if it doesn't like i'll be super happy and it worked out you know so like all, all the you know the components were moved around and copied and over and then mapped everything as as revit uh, elements and brought on over, over into revit and was able to cut kind of planes and sections and plans and stuff like that so that was really great but it, it really does vary that's that's a great success success story of someone who you know knows both softwares pretty well but then you, we see users yeah. that just know sketchup really well and just know revit right. really well and people in SketchUp really like that flexibility, which makes sense. Like I actually love SketchUp for a lot of house projects that I do. Like it's very flexible, easy to pan around and things like that. And I still love Revit because like I've scanned my house. So like I have a Li- LiDAR scan. I could like check everything, make sure it's bimified. I can move things around as, as much as I want to. Um, yeah. But there's still a huge benefit of even in, in that middle where if the SketchUp is not that structured, it's a, still a much better starting point because you can have dimensions and okay. you can easily like stretch your flex like, this is, They didn't respect the big coursing so it doesn't add up to a full break at the end okay well you know that uh, as you know more of an engineer architect where you're going to just move that over two inches and then you can can rev it to just move those those kind of subtle movements to make things accurate if you already have the content there is uh i would like to start from that instead of drawing every single thing and make the heights and make all the levels and and connect all those things if that's already kind of if you start from from something that's already there Uh, So it still helps out with that process. Like you could cut down like something that can take, you know, eight hours, 16 hours to like two, three hours. It still works, but yeah, uh, uh, it's, it's much more, uh, it's quicker.
0: Yeah. All right. So Helix in a nutshell gets geometry from SketchUp to Revit and it BIMifies it. And I, you know, super useful for, for the right audience. Definitely. All right. So let's, let's jump to glyph, talk about, how glyph can save sure. people time? What's Sorry, one
1: plan? more thing on on just a side thing, quick thing yeah. with Helix. Uh, we also have AutoCAD actually, so but that one's more focused on like two D plans. That's so, right. Yep. Yeah. So like you could detect like double lines and kind of great walls and doors in them, and them heels walls. So we also have something for uh, AutoCAD links and okay. Revit. Just quick thing. People are interested. No, I
0: think that, that was worth bringing up because uh, I mean, basically, it's an automatic tool to go from two D AutoCAD to three D in Revit, right. and I mean that's. Again, if you're starting from that point versus right. having to draw all those and snap to the underlay and bring in the underlay and what do you, do people explode yep. that? I hope not. Yeah, right. All it. those things, just just bring it in and just build, build a model. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right, right, so
0: talk about Glyph. What's Glyph do?
1: Sure, so Glyph, the whole vision with Glyph was like, um, we have, it's all, uh, it's a Revit tool, all within Revit and you have the Revit model and you have metadata in that model and so, how can you automate the uh, uh, documentation process? So that's kind of like the, the goal, the target. Now, it does a lot of it already, but it's not you know 100% what we, where we want it to be. We have a lot of development to do on it still. But basically, it's like it forces you to host more data in your Revit model because the Revit model informs how the, the documents are being generated. Automatically generating views, sections, dimensions, tags, creating sheets, placing views on sheets, all within presets that you could kind of create. And those presets could be actually collated into one kind of grouping, which we call a bundle. And you press that like your SD set bundle. So then the SD set will take your SD model that you've just generated, all the views for you based on, you know, the schema that you've defined before. Like I want this, this is how I usually do my SD set. I have four views, I have four elevations, let's say, I have, these are the settings and you pre-configure that and those configurations can be shared across, you know, different models. And, and that's kind of like uh, what Lyft does um, the old, like the under underlying thing is like, how do we automate more and more? Uh, so when I was a DIM manager, a lot of the times the the uh, templates were like subtractive. So a lot of people kind of have that. So this is how kind of Glyph augments this this piece of uh, kind of Revit models. You would just delete uh, views or you kind of have like 10 stories and you delete t- seven of them because you only have a three-story building. So the, the whole idea with Glyph is that it's an additive approach. So you can have a very thin Revit template. And then because of the additive approach, you just add on, you know, create views for you, don't subtract them as, you know, APIs were more exposed and it allows us to do a lot of that more automatically. So that's kind of a, yeah. maybe a long way to put it.
0: That's cool. I, I, it's, I, again, a, a big time saver. Uh, and I, I think about, like, obviously architecture is deadline driven. And if you yeah. can spend more time on the model and automate the sheets and the layout, the placing views on sheets and tagging things and dimensioning things, anything like that. I mean, and if all you have to do then is make a few adjustments, you can spend more time doing the thing you're really good at. You're not even good at, valuable at, which is the architecture, not the drafting. I think that what I'm so interested in these tools is around that kind of idea, which is stop, you know trying to compete with other firms on how good of a drafter you are. That's not what we should be doing. Right. we should be spending our time on the architecture side, right And so that I mean this is a tool that I can I think definitely helps in that regard. Anything else about Glyph that you want to throw in there?
1: A uh, cool thing that we've done uh, a few months ago is collision detection for annotations and dimensions. So that's pretty cool. Actually, we're pretty proud of that one. So basically, like if, if you have overlapping like tags, they wouldn't, you wouldn't have them overlapping because they actually the text the white space available. That was something that we spent some significant resources to figure out. So, uh, nice people should check it so out. So
0: even less adjusting stuff yeah. after the fact, because yeah, I mean, you can't have a drawing with overlapping tags. So they have to be readable. Yeah,
1: that's so. kind of some of the feedback we got too, where it's like, well, yes, this automates that, like, you know, the tag all and Revit, but that's more work that I have to delete. It's more work than actually just put, putting the right ones. So, in the effort to kind of automate it, it and accurately, you don't want to create more work for yourself because that's kind of the nuance. You want to actually be what you would want to place as a designer. So, um,
0: yeah, fantastic. All right, last tool. What's it called?
1: Morpheus. Yeah. So Morpheus is uh, stems from a lot of different projects that we worked on uh, with uh, a few architectural firms and some some construction companies actually. Uh, where we're trying to optimize things. And uh, also from some Dynamo scripts that we've done in the past where like it just kind of optimizes for certain, you know, sectors or, or verticals. And so what it what it is, is I, it's actually a pretty flat tool, but it uses uh, uh, generative design algorithms to handle things like adjacencies. So it has these things called modules and paths, and basically the way you, you draw uh, your design together, uh, it to respect those rules, those constraints. So if you have competing constraints, uh, like a multi-domain you know uh, optimization solver, it tries to kind of keep you know those adjacencies correct. or if you want to have like a point of interest and you want to put you know those on your site, it tries to move and and uh, uh, adjust the, the design based on that. But you control the um control kind of the footprint. So you could say, okay, I want the footprint to be I want this to be my area of play, which could be like a field region or a room or an area. And then within that you can subdivide it into more rooms. Uh, or, you know, other objects. So what it does is it has these different modules that you could bake into native uh, uh, Revit elements. So once you, uh, say you have your uh, design set up, let's say it's an office, right? Each module represents maybe a a room or an area, and then it could be represented by a few different furnitures. Like if it's a conference room, I have a conference table in there or, you know, other objects in there. So if you group that into a Revit group, then you could map that, you know, low res block into a, and that module and then as you kind of map those things you can make a design very rapidly and then click bake and then you get your actual content so to keep that in a more succinct way it's like a super duper cool array tool that has like intelligence that does things intelligently so you can use it for like office layouts an auditorium layout seat layouts uh like units for like housing map it to a link or something like that so you could like just array those things That's kind of what it is.
0: Interesting that it's working at different scales there. I think that that's unexpected, right, for for a tool like this, because I think most of the time people are thinking about this from a, when they think of generative design and and kind of optioneering standpoint, it's like at a very high level, very, you know, it's like site level, not like like a room level. I mean, we've seen examples of both of those, but but I, I, when, it comes, when it hits me, I guess I should say, it's like I, I think about like massing or I think about orientation on a site or I think about things like that and not necessarily like theater seating layout in an auditorium kind of a thing. So that to me is pretty interesting is that you can use it at different stages of design. As you start to dial things in, you can run it in different areas in your building as you've already made decisions on the, the whole thing. I think that's, that's pretty clever.
1: Right. Yeah. That was a lot of feedback that we've seen from people that are using, there's a lot of tools out there that are kind of outside of Revit that do this already, like automating, you know, both plans. And so a lot of those things, a lot of those tools are kind of, um, uh, they're great. Uh, But again, back to our list of it that we've talked about, we made a very intentional decision to be right within Revit to do that. You don't have to go to another app, you actually use the same controls. You already know the nav system. All you have to do is learn this little sector of, you know, how, how, these elements are are structured and then you're have everything else, you know, without having to make that leap or interoperability. And so because it's right natively in Revit and it's real time, actually, it's actually very smooth the way it works. Like we're making it very accessible. And also the reason we've seen it this way and the way we, we built it this way is we've seen a lot of dynamo things that we've done in the past for, for clients that were very like, it's pretty much a, complex array, like a full array or, but with a lot of logic, like orientation, and all that. And so we wanted to kind of add that or, or relate or allow that kind of functionality that you would get with something that's a lot more complex to build on your own in a simplistic, you know, accessible way.
0: Fantastic. I mean, that's like quite a suite of, of tools and I, it's fun watching these releases come out. It's fun watching the little teaser videos that you guys are putting on LinkedIn to kind of show people what's possible. And uh, I mean, it's 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 great to see your commitment to developing tools to make people's lives easier in a, a world of tools that are actually pretty difficult to use, right? Like <laughs> you, yeah. we've talked about visualization as being like an expertise, but all these tools take a level of commitment to and dedication to create uh, that expertise in those applications so that you can be efficient in them. And it's like recognizing that not everybody can be that in every one of these programs. So democratizing it so that one person can do more by actually doing less right with the right tools and their tool belt is, is pretty fantastic. So yeah, exactly. kudos to you guys for doing that. Yeah, Thank it's you. Very cool. I'm going to put links to where everybody can find you in the show notes, but I'd love it if you just say it out loud here and, and let everybody know where they can find out more about what you're working on and, and where to go to find it.
1: Sure. Yeah. And so, uh, if you just go to our, our website, EvolveLab.io. uh, there's an app page apps and then you can see all the different tools that we have and then we also have the forums well, which are a really great resource for to see what's kind of going on and all the releases are posted there uh, so that's lab.io. and uh, yeah those two links are pretty good for people to know
0: nice that'll do it well Ben thanks so much for sharing today I appreciate it and it's always fun talking to you
1: thank you thank you for the invite and uh, looking forward to talking to you again
0: Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to our members this week. Find out how you can become a member at trxl.co and I'll talk to you again next week.